Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, I told the first service, I'll tell you guys again, so those of you who are in the first service, this will be nothing new to you, but what Gary didn't tell you guys is that uh, I'm from Arkansas, and when you're from Arkansas, it's great to be anywhere, um, (laughs) including San Diego, so uh, I'm always thankful to come here, and I'm especially thankful that I came this weekend and not last weekend, uh, when it was like 100 degrees in here, and so, um, yeah, I'm really thankful about that. You know, another thing I'm thankful for, too... um, I was just thinking when Gary was talking during the announcements, I was just thinking about how thankful I am for this right here. Just clean drinking water. Gary's like, take it up there. <clears throat> so they can all see it and they'll be thankful too. No, that's, I'm just thankful for clean water. The reality that there are people in the world that don't even have that, let alone the gospel. So um, let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you what we're going to talk about here in the second service. Father, thank you for a reminder at the break during my conversation with Artie that um, apart from you, we can do nothing. Um, What is impossible for man is possible for you. You are great. You are powerful, you are sovereign, you are good. And we thank you that you have brought the gospel our way. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be irrationally generous with it to the world who is yet to know. I ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and work over this room, even as Gary made note of in the announcements and the introduction. Um, We want you here. We need you here. Um, You are not asking for permission to interrupt our lives. Um, You do, Spirit, what you will. Paul is clear about that. And so I pray that you would come and that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come in our lives, here in this city, and Lord, that what you're doing in and through us would be used to have a ripple effect at the ends of the earth. I need grace as we dive into some new content this morning, so help me think clearly and speak clearly. But Lord, it's really not about any of that. It is that we are made into the image of Jesus and that you would deal with us at a heart level this morning. I'm asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are just joining us, Uh, For the second service, we are thankful that you are here. Um, However, uh, you missed out on this morning, and I don't say that by any means to make anybody feel guilty, but in order for me to sort of get us into the second talk during the second service, it's going to be helpful for me to give you guys a little bit of context. And so the second talk is sort of building on what I talked about in the first service. Um, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to take the risk. For somebody who is here during the first service... uh, what did we talk about? Would somebody be willing? Some people are like, I don't like it when the pastor engages me, but I'm going to take the risk. Would somebody from the first service who is here during the second service be willing to say kind of out loud, what did we talk about in the first service? Okay, we talked about Genesis. What else did we talk about? 
okay, you, I shouldn't have asked, right? <laughs> Gary's like, bad idea, Sean, don't, don't what's that? David, okay, we're talking about Dave and Goliath. Now, for those of you who aren't here, you're like, they're all over the map. Somebody said it, a couple of you said it, what was it? Okay, what is God's purpose? Is it Jim? Joe, sorry, Joe. It's a small, Joe, God's purpose. And what is God's purpose that we saw from Genesis to Revelation in the first service? What is God's purpose? To what? Okay, that all the nations in the world would come to worship him. And so in some ways, that's kind of why I introduced us by, by showing the video, is to say God has this purpose that starts in Genesis, novel idea, right? <laughs> that starts in Genesis and it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And God's purpose is to bless all nations or to gather all nations back to himself through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so they're not just coming to him any old way. They're coming to him through the Son. No one comes to the Father except through what Jesus says. Me, right? So God has this purpose to gather people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all ethnicities back to himself through what Christ did at the cross. So through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And for those of us who have been given the gospel, just like Abraham, just like Israel in the Old Testament, this blessing has come to us because like Bob said last week, we are a mere piece of conduit, right? The blessing's coming to us because it's moving through us. It's on its way to someone else. And so here's what happens. God comes to this guy named Abraham 12 chapters into the Bible, commands him to leave his land and his loved ones. And then he promises this guy <clears throat> that through him, all peoples on earth are going to be blessed. And that ultimate blessing that God is talking about in this promise made to Abraham is the gospel. That the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and what Christ did, is eventually going to make its way to all nations. And so we walk through the Old Testament looking at example after example, like David and Goliath, Solomon's wisdom, the Red Sea, the River Jordan. We talked about Jonah. We looked at the Psalms. All through the Old Testament, God is working in and through Israel to fulfill this promise, that all nations would be blessed. Israel was to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the nations, and frankly, by the time you get to the Old Testament, we get a snapshot of Israel's report card, right? They bombed miserably. But where Israel fails, Christ prevails. And when Jesus steps onto the scene, God's purpose to bless all nations is picked up in the life of ministry, or the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus steps onto the scene, begins his public ministry, begins reaching out to Jews and Gentiles, so those of his people and those who were not of his people, after he goes to the cross, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, in our place as our substitute, he rises from the dead, and then he gives what we call the Great Commission to the church. Okay, Not just to the disciples, and not just to individuals, but to the church. And what he says is, go and make disciples of all what? Nations. Okay, Gary said it again in the announcements and in the introduction. He repeats it again in a different way in Mark 16, 15, going to all the... World, Luke 24, 47, or forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I send you. And then in Acts, the New Testament church is birthed. And what does he say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth, okay? The gospel left Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. 
We are living in the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. However, while God made this promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed, not probably, maybe, or hopefully, but will, we are living in a gap period of history where that promise is yet to be fulfilled. Now, what I told you in Revelation was that the promise will one day come to fulfillment. And John gets this vision, and he basically says, heaven's going to be like a multicultural Jesus party. Newsflash. Some of us were like, oh, I thought it was going to be full of like middle-class Americans singing Chris Tomlin songs forever. I don't know. Okay, maybe. But <clears throat> John gives us a glimpse of what heaven is going to one day look like. And he says, the promise that God made in Genesis to Abraham that all nations will be blessed, God is ultimately going to what? Fulfill. All nations will one day be blessed. However, this time period that we're living in, here's the reality. This is really sort of what's left in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So for our football fans in the room, where are my football fans in the room? Okay, Three of you, that's all right. <laughs> I don't, need, I don't need many, just a couple. Okay, this is what we call the red zone, if you will. This is really what's left in the fulfillment of Revelation 7-9. This part of the world right here is the least reached part of the world. It's called the 1040 window. Raise your hand if you've heard of it before. Okay, good. It's not a tax form. Uh, it gets its name from the two, some of you like tax from 1040 easy, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it gets its name from the two latitudes that make it up, the 10th and the 40 degree north latitude. It stretches from West Africa all the way over to East Asia. This is really sort of the final frontier of the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham that all nations would be blessed. We're talking about roughly 2.4 to 2.6 billion people, no church, no Bible, no access to the gospel. We're talking roughly about 2 to 4% of the world's missionary force working inside that window. And so this is really what we're here to talk about today. God made a promise that all nations are going to be blessed. He gives a command to the church to make disciples of all of those nations. And so this is, what, this is what's left in the task. So here's what we're going to talk about <clears throat> this morning. That All that was just introduction. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. Okay? <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 12. Starting in verse 12. And I'm actually going to read from 12 to 24. Okay? From 12 to 24. And I'm not going to unpack this text. That's not what I'm going to do this after, or this morning, I should say. There are some points that I want to draw from this text that's going to segue into what we're going to talk about this afternoon. So Luke 14, verse 12, follow along. So this is a parable that Jesus is about to tell. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you. In return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I've oftentimes wondered if he had a little too much wine. I don't know what he's saying there. I really mean that. <clears throat> 
But he said to him, and then Jesus responds to this guy. So there's this, he's telling this story, and this guy responds. And Jesus says to him, a man once gave a great banquet. So Jesus is about to tell a story about a guy who gives this banquet. He said, there was once a man who gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to what? So there's this man, and he's going to put on this banquet, and he's invited these people to come. And he's going to send out his servants to gather these people who have been invited to come. And as the servants go approach, all these people who have been invited to this incredible banquet, one after the other, they start to make what? about why they can't come to what? The banquet. Why they can't come to the banquet. Verse 17. Let me back up. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I, and, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. One by one, they each gave a different what? Excuse. They'd been invited to this incredible banquet, and they all said what? No, thanks. If you're a believer and you're in this room this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, the case that I made this morning was that all of us are called and invited into God's kingdom. And not only are we invited into God's kingdom, but we are invited to play a part in the advancement of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. If you're a Christian, you've been invited into God's kingdom, you've responded, but it's not just for you to come into the kingdom. There's this invitation. The case that I made in the first hour was to take God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. All of us who are Christians have been invited into God's kingdom to play a part in God's kingdom and taking his name to the ends of the earth. However, all of us are dealing with our own set of what? Excuses to that invitation. And I was talking with Bob at the break, and I thought this was wonderful. It's so true. Um, really, I'm going to preach this sermon. I'm going to preach this topic or whatever you want to call it to myself. And like Bob said last week, I'm going to invite you into what? Listen. So this is really more for me, probably, than it is for you. And there might be some things that you take along the way as we walk through it. So what we're going to talk about is this. What are our obstacles and our excuses to involvement in God's global purpose? All right? And for some of us, this is going to be very uncomfortable, including myself, seeing that I'm preaching to myself. What are our obstacles and our excuses to involvement in God's global purpose to take his name to the ends of the earth. Now, we could talk about a lot of different excuses. I mean, you know, we got three in Luke 14, and, you know, excuses were nothing new to Jesus. There are other occasions where Jesus deals with people who give him excuses. Um, Jesus says to some guys, follow me, and this guy says, oh, I got to go bury my father, and Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. He's pretty plain and blunt about it. And so, nothing new under the sun here. And we can't talk about all the excuses we have, but we can talk about a few. So here's the ones that we're going to cover this morning. What are the obstacles, involvements, uh, obstacles and excuses that we give to involvement in God's global purposes? 
Number one, the needs around us. Number two, materialism and debt. Three, this idea of support raising. Number four, parents and family. Number five, this thing called the call. <clears throat> number six, bad theology. And if I can get us there on time, number seven, bad missiology. And if this doesn't make sense to you, I'm going to unpack what each one of these means as we walk through them, okay? So, seven excuses that we can come up with as a way to say no thanks to being involved in God's global purposes. <clears throat> number one, the needs around us. Um, you know, this one's a real tricky one, the needs around us. I was just talking with the host family that I was staying with last night. Uh, here in town, and they attend your guys' church. They're here this morning, and this issue came up. We were talking about how a lot of people can test when we start talking about global missions, right? Global missions involves us having to go somewhere. It means us having to leave, and so sometimes people want to make this argument. Well, Sean, you're talking about God's plan for the nations and going to the ends of the earth, but what about the needs, right? Maybe you've heard something like that. Maybe deep down or under your breath, you've said something like that. Well, we're all revved up about the nations, but man, what about the needs right here? And this one's real tricky to address because it sounds good. It sounds spiritual. It's, it's true. It's a legitimate question. What about the needs right here? What's the name of the town we're in, Gary? Chula Vista. Chula Vista. Thank you. I didn't want to mess that up. Okay, are there needs? Let's just answer that question. So what? So what about the needs right here in Chula Vista? Are there needs here in Chula Vista? Yes. Are they legitimate needs? Yes. We have needs in this room. So it's obvious that there are needs today that exist in Chula Vista. And so when somebody comes along and says, well, Sean, you're talking about the ends of the earth. What about the needs right here? I'm sort of pigeonholed, right? Well, what am I supposed to say? Well, the needs right here just aren't that important. Right? That just sounds so unchristlike. It's, it's such a catch-22 question. I want to share a quote from you. It's kind of lengthy from a guy named Steve Hawthorne. He's been mobilizing the church to be involved in God's heart for the nations now for longer than I've been alive. And this is what he says about this issue of the needs at home. He says, if someone is caught up in meeting the home side needs... When he ought to be exploring, okay, he ought to be exploring ways to serve overseas, he faces what I call the tyranny of the immediate. Here's how it works. Close-up needs such as those in our family or our home church press in so demandingly that immediate needs begin molding life-shaping priorities. Now listen carefully. Certainly, the immediate needs are what? Real, okay? And working to meet them is entirely legitimate, but too often, the close-up hurts and needs eclipse even greater ones that are an ocean away. So we want to acknowledge the fact that there are real needs here, locally. Okay, not just here, but in my town, in Fayetteville, back home. There are local needs that are legitimate. But what is Mr. Hawthorne arguing? You've got to be very careful that those needs don't eclipse even greater ones that are an ocean away. Oftentimes when people present this to me as an excuse for not going overseas or not getting involved in God's global purpose, they'll say, you know, Sean, <laughs> we got needs right here. At which point I've started asking them questions like, well, are you involved in meeting them? 
What do you mean? Well, you tell me that there are needs right here. Do you know your neighbor's name? Have you ever invited them to come into your home and eat with you? (laughs) Have you ever asked them if they would be interested in having some sort of a spiritual discussion? And then it's like deer in headlights, right? Know my neighbor's name? (laughs) Yes. So what happens is a lot of times people want to use this as an excuse to not get involved in what God's doing over there because there are needs right here when the reality is what? They don't even know their neighbor's name. They don't even know their neighbor's name. And so it's kind of like smoke and mirrors. And so what I would tell you guys is, man, if, if you've been tempted to use this as an excuse to not get involved, start with getting to know your neighbor's. Right? If you don't know your neighbor's names, don't use this as an excuse to, to meet people who are an ocean away. In fact, if you're not engaging your neighbors with the gospel, I would tell you, don't go overseas because there's nothing about the salt water that's going to change. Like, change you. You see what I'm saying? We call it saltwater theology, where people think like, oh, you know, I don't share the gospel with my neighbors. I don't know them. I don't do ministry with, alongside of them. And so now I'm going to go overseas and do it with people who don't speak my language and they're in a different culture. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. So obstacle one is this idea of the needs around us. Let's engage in meeting them, but it's not an excuse to be involved in what God's doing globally. Number two, <clears throat> materialism and debt. Materialism and debt. Uh, I serve on staff with a ministry called the Traveling Team. And what the Traveling Team does is we basically uh, travel all across the country working primarily with Christian college students on campuses across the U.S., recruiting them to get involved in God's global purposes. And so for the first five years of mine and my wife's marriage, we climbed into a minivan and traveled through 49 states in the U.S., going campus to campus to campus to campus, recruiting college students to get involved in God's global purpose. And so when you live out of a minivan for five years, you do not have a lot of room for stuff. In fact, we, all we had room for was one suitcase, each of us. Okay, some of you guys are panicking. You're thinking, <laughs> both of you had to, no, we each had our own suitcase. And I think what, what God taught me after five years of traveling across the country, live, living out of a suitcase for nine months out of the year was that I can get by on far less than I think I need. I think that there's some credibility to me saying that, man, I I realize you can get by with a pair of jeans or two, one or two shirts, and a few undergarments. You don't need a lot. And so I bring that experience to the table because materialism is a huge struggle of my own, right? Right? Uh, if God blesses me with $100, who do you think the first person is that I'm going to spend it on? It's not a trick question. <laughs> me, okay? Me. God blesses me with $100, and I'm like, Lord, thank you for blessing me. <laughs> that $100 must be for me. It's a gift from the Lord. He loves me and cares about me. And so, yeah, I struggle with this deeply. Um, it is still a sin that I am at war with. Uh, and so I'm speaking to you guys out of my own heart. I'm so thankful that God gave me a wife who does not struggle with this. She could care less about stuff. In fact, when I'm struggling to buy more stuff, she's always the one who's putting me in check, asking me questions like, Sean, why do you need one more button-down shirt? I'm like, Gap just came out with a new one. It looks nice. And she's like, you don't need it. 
And so I'm thankful for that. But this is a real problem and a real excuse that, that the church is dealing with in America. Um, this idea of materialism and debt is a major obstacle to involvement in God's global purposes. Uh, a friend of mine, it's, it, materialism is rarely a blunt excuse. It's rarely a blunt excuse. Like, I've never met somebody who said to me, Sean, I would love to get in, involved in God's global purposes, but I'm materialistic, sorry. <laughs> you should laugh at that. Like, I've never met that person. It's very subtle. A friend of mine who I work with calls materialism the silent excuse. It's the silent excuse that we need to evaluate. Man, are we struggling with materialism? And, and again, Bob and I were talking at the break, and he was talking to you guys last week about this issue of discontentment discontent with what we have or what we what we don't have i want to make a quick caveat too when we address this issue of materialism and debt i want to say that um there's nothing uh there's nothing holy about taking a vow of poverty does that make sense like i think a lot of times when you talk about missions people misunderstand you to think well man does that mean that you need to just you know go be poor and that'll make you more holy and that's the answer no Uh, money is an amoral thing Right? It's the love of money that the scripture is clear on that is the root of all evil. So there's nothing necessarily holy about taking some sort of a vow of poverty. In fact, I would say as affluent Americans, it's probably the other side of the coin that we need to be dealing with is are we, right, are we the one holding our blessings or are our blessings the one holding who? Us. Are we the ones holding our blessings or are our blessings the things that are holding us? Um, I was doing a little bit of homework yesterday in preparation for this, and the most recent statistic that I read is that the average American credit card debt is now up to $16,000. Not $1,600, $16,000. And I realize that that might even be a reality for some of us in this room this morning. And so I say that uh, frankly, um, but sensitively. I want to share a quote from you guys from a an old, old dead Puritan pastor from the 17th century um, who has really helped put a check on my own personal materialism. And this is what he says, Ezekiel Hopkins. Bear with some of the old English language. He says, we expect much more from them, them being things, okay, material possessions. We expect much more from them than they can yield. And so the vanity with materialism is not so much in the object, but in our affection for the object. And then this is where it gets great. What is gold and silver but diversified earth? And hard shining clay, he says. The richest perfumes are but the clammy sweat of trees. The softest silks are but the excrement of a vile worm. The most expensive wines are nothing but puddle water strained through a vine. Our choicest delicacies are but dirt cooked up and served to us. Fancy and custom have conspired together to cheat us. And the truth is, the world is much better in show than it ever was in what? Substance. (laughs) Just clammy sweat. Yeah, I heard it over here. Someone said, boom. (laughs) It's just a stern reminder I'm not taking any of it with me. And here's why this is such an obstacle. It's not just an obstacle for, right, the people who want to go overseas. It's the obstacle for the people who are involved in trying to send them overseas, 
You see, it's like a, this materialism debt issue is a double-edged sword. Some of us in this room, would, would God's stirring our hearts legitimately. Maybe he wants me to go overseas, but over here, what's going on? I'm tied down to all these material things. I'm tied down to this debt. I can't go because there's all these things that i got to pay for. In fact, the book of Proverbs says that the borrower is what? Slave to the lender. Debt is dangerous. Now, sometimes some forms of debt are okay, but man, debt can be a dangerous thing. And so some of us want to go, but we can't because the blessing is holding us. And some of us want to give to those who are going, but we can't because we're just, we just got our nose far enough above the water that we don't have any extra to give. You with me? And so materialism and debt is a huge, huge issue. Let's try to tackle another one real quick. How about this issue of support raising? So the needs around us can sometimes become an excuse. This issue of materialism and debt can become an obstacle to getting involved in God's global purpose. Number three, support raising. Sean, I would go overseas, but I don't want to raise support. How many of you guys have raised support in any, any kind of fashion, shape? Maybe a short-term trip, something like that? Okay, so a few of us have been able to, to raise some support for some different ministry opportunities. Um, my wife and I have spent the last 11 years now living off support, and I have been able to witness God's faithfulness over and over and over and over again. When he says, my God, in Philippians 4.19, shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, I've experienced it. I've watched, me and my wife have never gone without. God loves to provide for his children. He takes care of his children. And it might not be what we want, but it's always what we what? Need. It's always what we need. Every time he promises us that. And so support raising has been an incredible journey for me and my wife. And when it comes to support raising and people who want to make it an excuse to not go overseas is I've come to see support raising in sort of three categories. There are the ignorant, the arrogant, and the untrusting. Okay, the ignorant, the arrogant, and the untrusting. And I want to unpack those just real quick with you. What do I mean by the ignorant? I know that's sort of a harsh way to say it. But the ignorant are those who are willing to raise support, but they just don't know how to. That's a good place to be. God's, God's leading me into something, and it's going to require I raise support. God's leading me to engage in his global purposes. It means I'm going to have to raise support, but I've never done it. I don't know how to do it. I'm wading out into new water. So they're ignorant with regards to how do I go about doing that process? You know, do I just open up the telephone book and sort of just start going down one at a time? Hey, would you be interested in it? No, no, no. There's actually phenomenal training in this country. And if you're interested in it, let me know, and I'll put you in contact with the people who do this. But there is great training in the country today that will equip you to raise support, either for a short-term trip or, like in my case, <clears throat> as a salary. And so there is phenomenal training. Don't let your ignorance of how to go about raising support raising be an excuse for not getting involved in what God's doing globally. Um, and again, I could just go on and, and, and gush over all the stories of how I've seen God provide for me and my wife and friends of mine and other ministry coworkers of mine. So there's the ignorant. But then there's also this group of people that I call the arrogant. And when it comes to support raising, there are some of us <clears throat> who say, I don't want to raise support 
because I don't want to come across as someone who what? Begs. I don't want to be asking other people for money because I might come across as a beggar, right? And I often remind them of Luke 8. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them, which includes who in this context? Jesus. Okay? When people say to me, oh, I don't want to ask for money because I might come across as begging, I say to them, well, what do you do with Jesus? Jesus lived off of support. We're talking about the same Jesus who fed 5,000 on one occasion and 4,000 on another, who raised people from the dead, who had no problem providing for himself. However, he humbly chose to live off of the support of others. He gives us a lesson in our own neediness, our own dependency, and the opportunity that we have to let others be a part of the kingdom through blessing us in financial giving and support. So don't let arrogance be an excuse. Well, I don't want to beg. Jesus had no problem living off the support of other people. Um, and then the last group of people are those who are just struggling with this issue of support raising because there's an issue of, of, of unbelief. They're untrusting. They're afraid that God's not going to provide for them. And that's okay. That's normal <clears throat> that we would wrestle with this issue of, man, can I trust God to provide for me? And sometimes we need to be reminded of stories like the nation of Israel for 40 years, God provided for 2 to 3 million Israelites in the desert. Providing is not a problem for God. I say it this way sometimes. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if he needs to support you, he can do what? Sell a few. <laughs> he can sell a few. And so wherever you might be, whether it's, man, I'm ignorant of how to go about support raising, or you know what, maybe I'm dealing with some arrogance and some pride in my heart, and I need to humble myself to be willing to not let this be an excuse. Or whether you're dealing with, man, can I trust God to provide? Yes. God provided for his people through the desert. And what does Moses say at the end of the day? You lacked what? Nothing. The soles of your shoes did not wear out. You were taken care of just fine. And so... Don't let support raising be an obstacle. There are people out there who are eager to give financially. In fact, you guys just finished up a series called Irrational Generosity. If you're interested in going, now is the time. <laughs> Did you catch that? Okay, if you're interested in going to Paseo del Rey, now's the time. The people are eager to give all right, so <clears throat> let's look at another one. How about number four? <clears throat> Parents and family. The needs around us, materialism and debt, support raising, and parents and family. A whole talk could be given on this single obstacle right here. And so I just need to say up front that I'm not going to be able to come close to doing justice to all that needs to be said about parents and family being an obstacle to our involvement in God's global purposes. This is a huge, huge issue. Uh, for the last 10 years, um, I've been mobilizing God's people, both Christian college students and the church at large, to get involved in global missions. 
And I spent the first half of those 10 years working strictly with college students, and the second half of that, I've spent my time mostly with the parents of those college students. So my ministry experience has allowed me to sort of live on both sides of the fence of dealing with students who want to go overseas and then dealing with the parents of those students who want to go overseas. And I have seen, I still maintain, I still maintain to this day that the number one thing that keeps Christian college students from going overseas is what? Now, not just any kind of parents, Christian parents. Some of you shudder. (laughs) Oh, dear. Really? Yes. Not just any kind of parents, but Christian parents. I can't tell you how many students that I've counseled with across this country who have said, what do I do when God says go and mom and dad say no? What do I do when God says go and mom and dad say no? And I've seen this all across the spectrum from something as general as a parent who is legitimately concerned for their son or their daughter or a grandparent who's concerned for their grandchildren. That would be the most general. Hey, we love you and care about you and there's risk involved here. You bet. Or... I've seen it all the way from the extreme to parents financially cutting their children off or emotionally cutting their children off. Another conversation that I had last night with the host family that I was staying with, that parents and family can become a very tricky obstacle and excuse to try to navigate. You know, students say, man, I want to go. I want to go for a summer. I want to go for a year after college. And mom and dad are saying, no, they're threatening to pull my financial aid or whatever, you know, they're doing to help provide for me. All these different things that they're dealing with. And I think I used to really come down hard on parents until I became one. (laughs) Um, We have a a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a four-week-old daughter. Um, So I'm, like, so convicted that you guys are here. Your daughter's 10 days old. I'm like, Meredith, we're not going to church for two months, okay? (laughs) So thank (sighs) Yeah, I'm really convicted. Um, So, yeah, uh, you know, you become a parent, and then things change. You know, and so I used to come down hard on parents like, man, your, Christ, you, your parents call themselves Christians and they don't want you to go get involved in God's heart for the nations. No, they're afraid, there's risk, there's danger. And I'm like, there's risk right here in San Diego. You could step out onto the road and get ran over, you know. But I've since sort of dialed back and I've, I've, I've come to a place where I'm not so hard on mom and dad anymore because I've come to realize that sometimes mom and dads look at their sons and daughters who are maybe in college and who now have gotten all excited about missions. <laughs> and they're like, hey, listen, you want to go overseas on a short term mission trip. I'm not OK with that. You can't get out of bed until 2 p.m. Right. You're on your eighth major. Uh, you're on your 15th dating relationship. Um, You can't manage the $100 a month that I give you to begin with. And now you want to go on a mission trip? And so what do I tell the students? What do I tell mom and dad? You're right. What do I tell the students? Like, hey, it's time to grow up. Maybe the reason that mom and dad aren't okay with you going overseas is because you haven't modeled to them that you can be an adult in the place that God has you in in life right now. And so, again, I've come to see it sort of on both sides of the fence where it's like, man, some of it, Some of it has to do with parents who are what we call helicopter parents. Were they what? They hover. They hover over their students. I've met students who are in grad school in their late 20s who can't make decisions about what classes they take because mom hasn't okayed it yet. Now, that would be an extreme example. But sometimes it's parents who are are hovering. They're unwilling to let go of them. Um, I would tell you guys that uh, ultimately we've got to give them up to the Lord. They're never ours to begin with. 
And when I say ours, I'm not just talking about kids. I'm talking about family in general. Uh, We need to come to a place where we are willing to hold family very, very loosely. Um, Our family is a gift from God, but God can do with it what he wills and what he chooses. I will forever um, be changed by a story that I heard about this couple here in the middle that I want to share with you guys. This is the Beckett family, Charles and Mary Beckett. And uh, my wife over here uh, on your guys' right, Meredith, and some old co-workers of ours, we were attending a conference uh, being hosted by a well-known evangelical in the U.S. uh, named John Piper. I don't know if you guys may have heard of him or not. But um, John Piper was hosting this conference up in Minneapolis, and we went to go attend. And uh, Charles and Mary Beckett were there speaking um, as guest speakers at Mr. Piper's conference. And they were there sharing um, their own personal story. And their own personal story actually involved the loss uh, of their daughter in the cause of global missions. You guys may remember reading, it was about 10 or 12 years ago, um, there were 10 missionary slash aid workers in Afghanistan that were gunned down by the Taliban. And Cheryl Beckett, the daughter of Charles and Mary, was one of those aid workers. And we sat and listened to Charles and Mary talk about what it cost them to lose their daughter in God's global mission. And after they got done talking, we approached them. We had an incredible time of prayer with them. We cried together. We laughed together. And I told Charles and Mary, I said, uh, we are part of a ministry that is basically calling the church and Christian college students to get involved in God's global purposes. And so I, I stand in front of hundreds of people across this country exhorting them to get involved in God's global purposes. And I said, Mary, if you had a chance to stand in my shoes as a mother who had lost their daughter to the cause of global missions, what would you say to my audience? And I will never forget what Mary Beckett said to me. She said, Sean, it is not enough to stand in church and sing about it. What do I mean? We come sometimes on Sunday mornings, we raise our hands and we sing songs like, I surrender all, all to thee, my precious Savior, I surrender. We come and sing it. And what Mary was saying very plainly was that ain't enough. We got to be willing to lay him on the altar just like Abraham did with Isaac. And then I turned to Charles and I said, Charles, what would you say to a group of parents who oftentimes think that their children are dishonoring them and they're using passages like Exodus where it says, you know, honor your father and mother. Sometimes parents use those passages to manipulate their kids. I said, Charles, what would you say? Charles said, Cheryl could not have done a more honorable thing than to go to the ends of the earth and tell people about Jesus. And so wherever we're at on the scale, like family can be a very tricky issue when it comes to navigating. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't saying love our family. He's saying we have to be careful that it doesn't become an idol. That's the significance of that more than me part that he's talking about right there. How about this one? How about the call? Okay. Kind of watching our time here. The call. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they were not called to missions, I would never have to raise support again. (laughs) Legitimately. (laughs) Sean, I'm not called to get involved in God's global purposes. At which point, I've come to start asking the question, well, what would a call look like if you got one? Would it be like a liver quiver? (laughs) 
Who knows? I mean, that could have been last night's bad bean burrito, right? Seriously. I mean, how would you know if you even had a call? Sometimes we use it as an excuse when we don't even really know what it is. What would it look like? What would it involve? I mean, legitimately, would the skies part? Some of us are expecting that, aren't we? What would a call look like? When we would counsel college students across the country, I would sit down with guys and I would say, okay, you don't feel called to missions. Let's talk this through. Were you called to come to San Diego State University? No. Were you called to study environmental science? No. Were you called to date the girl that you're dating? I don't think so. (laughs) Were you called to? No, I don't think so. Well, why all of a sudden do we have to spiritualize it when it comes to missions? Right? You didn't feel called to San Diego State, to your major, to the person that you're dating. But now all of a sudden when it, when it comes to talking about missions, it's like, oh, I, I, I didn't get a call. And I would, I would give the example for some of us in this room this morning. I was thinking about this this morning I was, as I was praying through this. Just take, for example, your job. Did you feel called to your current job? Some of you may legitimately be able to say Yes. But for most of us, why are we working the job that we're working to meet a what? Need. We're working the job that we're working to meet a need, generally speaking. Again, I know I'm kind of speaking in brushstrokes here. But most of us are working a job because we're meeting a need. What if we applied that same principle to the Great Commission? Is there a need? Yes. Then let's meet it. Rather than waiting for a special call... What if the command is the call? What if the command is the call? I'll never forget, I was in Springfield, Missouri, and I was talking through the call, and I said to the audience, what would a call even look like? And I will never forget this guy, Michael, sitting over to my left, said, maybe it'd look like that black book in your hand. (laughs) Right? Maybe it'd look like that black book. Maybe it'd look like God's Word. Right? And some of you guys are going, well, that's not how, you know, how did God call people in the Old Testament like Abraham and Jeremiah and the prophets? Well, he did what? Spoke to them. But what does the writer of Hebrews tell us in chapter 1? That in many ways and in long, like times long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And what has Christ said to us? Make disciples of all nations. What would a call even look like if we got one? Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, said it won't do to say that you have no special call to go to China. With the facts, the needs, you catch this? With the needs and the facts before you and the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you should determine instead whether you have a special call to stay home. Some of us are like, I would have never came to second service if I'd have known this is what we were talking about. I don't want to take perspectives because I don't want to leave. What would a call look like even if it came? Does God give special calls? Yeah, he gave one to Paul. It's called the call on the Macedonian road. But we got to be careful not to make normative, right? What's a special instance or a special circumstance? How about this one? How about bad theology? We'll stop at bad theology and just call it good. Bad theology. Oh, Gary says, sorry, Gary says go. Okay, bad theology. How about this one? What do you mean? Some of us are sitting there going, Sean, I'm not into theology. That's like for the pastors and the deep thinkers. Okay, I'm just a simpleton. That's okay. Theology matters. What is theology? Theology is the study of God. 
So our study and our understanding of who God is as he reveals himself in the Bible affects our involvement in God's mission. So our understanding of God impacts our involvement in God's mission. Here's what I mean. Fox News, okay, this is a somewhat old report, about 10 years old. Fox News did this report, and I don't, it doesn't matter whether you like Fox News or not. I, there, there are other Pew Research um, surveys that say, this, that say the same things as this. In 2008, Fox News, in a, an article titled America, My Faith Isn't the Only Way to Heaven, this is what the article said, that among, more than st- among the more startling numbers, roughly 57% of evangelical church attenders say that they believe Many religions lead to eternal life. That means that this half of the room right here thinks that there are many ways to get to heaven, while this half of the room maintains there's only one way to heaven. This is a huge... This is... 57% of evangelicals say this. What that's saying is that half of you in this room, over half of you in this room this morning, aren't sure if Jesus really is the only way to heaven and why that matters. Why is it significant? Because if there are multiple ways to get to heaven and Jesus isn't the only way, then Christ's death on the cross was what? worthless and the fact that any of us would pack up our stuff sell our stuff take our family to the ends of the earth all of it would be in vain you with me so are there multiple ways to heaven no the scripture is very clear paul said it peter said it john said it and jesus said it paul said there's one mediator there's no one else no other name under heaven by which men can be saved and whoever believes in him in christ's name John says, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through what? Me. Now, it doesn't mean, this is a narrow view. The world looks at the church and says, you are narrow-minded. You are bigots to believe that Christ is the only way. Just because we believe it doesn't mean that we have to be jerks about it. You with me? But it doesn't mean that we compromise, because if we compromise on this belief, we make an offense to the cross and what Christ accomplished to purchase us and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation back to himself. And so this is a huge, huge issue to wrestle with the reality of why is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus the only way? Yes, the text is clear. He is the only way. Last and final, bad missiology. What do I mean by that? Bad missiology. This is one that I've been dealing with in the last two to three years of my ministry career. If missions is everything, then missions is what? Nothing. There's this movement across the evangelical church today um, where churches are beginning to say things like, we are a missional church. Okay, and that may be something that you guys or some of you here have used that language before. I'm not opposed to using the word missional. There's nothing in and of itself that's wrong with that word. But we've got to be very careful with how we use it. Because if we're a missional church and everything that we do is missions, 
How does that have an impact on us getting involved in God's global cause? Well, if I'm a missionary to my neighbor, then why would I ever need to go where? To the nations. You with me? Do you see the danger of this? When we muddy the waters, and some of you are thinking, yeah, Sean, but it's just semantics. It's just, an, it's just a matter over words. Well, words matter. Words are significant. It's, it, it is an issue of semantics, and so we've got to figure out, is everything missions? Because if everything is missions, then nothing can become missions. There's no distinction between what I'm doing to reach out to my neighbors, which is biblically commanded and encouraged. Should I be reaching my neighbors? Yes. But is that the same thing as packing up my family and going overseas to plant a church among the nations? No. Does God love the one any more than the other? No. Is anyone more, than, more spiritual than the other? No, sometimes a missionary might be less spiritual. But there is a distinction between man. Well, I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary right here. I would argue with you that you're probably not. And actually this evening... During the 4 o'clock hour, I'm going to build a case for why that's not necessarily true. So whatever our excuse or our obstacle may be, thanks for letting me go super long, we've got to ask ourselves, man, Jesus has invited us in, just like he invited some people. There was this parable where this guy invited some folks to the banquet, and all of them came with their own set of excuses. What are mine? What are yours? And how is the gospel tackling those excuses? God wants us to be involved, and there is rich reward. It will come at a cost, but there is rich reward waiting to be had for those of us who put our yes on the table and say, Jesus, you put me anywhere on the map and do with me whatever you want. Let me pray. We'll get you guys out of here. Father, thank you. We need help to tackle these excuses. Personally and corporately as a church, Lord, help us to say yes. Help us to say yes. And thank you, God, for what you're already doing here in and through this church. I ask that you would do bigger things through this, through this body. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.